Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at these verses. We don't have time to do an in-depth consideration, but enough for us to see the import of this passage for us, the beauty of this passage for us. I do this from time to time, take a little detour from our normal series. Sometimes on the first Sunday when we're having the Lord's Supper, uh, and sometimes on occasions of baptisms. Not always, but uh, uh, every once in a while. And so this is one of those once in a whiles. So we're going to look at this, one of the several passages pertaining to, to the covenant sign of baptism. Follow along as I read. God's inerrant, infallible word, the only true word we have for faith and practice. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with the repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, for the clarity. Illumine our minds because we're dull. We ask that you might now teach us 
that we might love you more. If there's any here who do not believe, may the words that are proclaimed be used by your spirit to bring saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. When you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you realize that there are several things that are supposed to unify the church. One of them is a common faith. Another is a common baptism. And yet, that has not been the case, has it? It largely was at various times in the history of the church and generally so up until the 17th century. The 17th century is when a lot of things changed in that post-Reformation period. Uh, For instance, um, generally it was accepted that pouring or sprinkling as the mode of baptism was the biblical mode, the accepted mode. That changed in the 17th century and changed dogmatically. The main reason that changed is because some people thought that sprinkling or effusion was Roman Catholic. And even though the reformers disavowed that and their definition of what baptism was was not at all what the Roman Catholic definition of baptism was. People continue to insist, and so, no, let's do it a different way to kind of distance ourselves. Not only was the mode subject to question, uh, but also was uh, who are the proper subjects of baptism. And again, in the 17th century, we have this shift from what we saw in the Old Testament, what we see in the book of Acts, from you and your children to just people who profess faith in Christ. Now I say profess faith in Christ because there's no such thing as believer's baptism. You understand that. There's no way for us to judge a man's heart truly and know if he is genuinely possessing saving faith. We can look for a credible profession, and that's the best we can do, but sadly the Bible testifies of apostasy all through the scriptures from old through the New Testament on a continuity, that there have been those who have professed faith and received the rights of the church and yet have gone out from us because they weren't of us. So there's not any such thing as believer's baptism. There's professing believer's baptism. And then there's covenant baptism. That is, that it's a covenant sign. You ever noticed how often in the Bible God works through signs? He gives signs that point to his word and his faithfulness over and over and over again. We obviously see that in this passage. And so, as I said, in light of Henry Joel Chesser's baptism this morning, I thought it'd be good to skip out of John series for a while and, uh, 
and consider baptism. And here at the Reformation time, we, we learn a good deal about this, this sacrament of the church, this sign and seal of the church in this passage, and some of the priorities of the Reformation. The first one you see in the outline there is the priority of John's preaching. The first six verses speak to us about John's preaching, his prophetic message. In those days, John the Baptist, or baptizer, uh, literally it's the baptizing one, John the baptizing one came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So before we ever get to the, the baptism issue, we've got John preaching. Again, in Matthew, or in in Luke, rather, chapter 3, verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. Same context. Preaching good news, preaching repentance. And again, In John, behold, the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. John was first and foremost a preacher of the gospel. Calling men and women and boys and girls to repentance. That's what I mean when I say that Baptism, in baptism, we, we have a, re, a Reformation recalibration. In other words, baptism is brought back into proper place, both in its meaning, its significance, but in its relationship to the preaching. It was not a standalone event. By the way, I could pick now in these days, I just learned about this can't believe I didn't know this, but a lot of things I don't know, but that there are actually churches that will have the Lord's Supper totally divorced from the Word of God. They just treat it like a a spiritual meal of some kind. Well, Rome did that, of course. And I'm not talking about Roman Catholics right now in the present day. And then there are those who divorce baptism from the preaching of the word. Now, if I were to just tell you, go home and think about this, how long would it take for something like a man taking a handful of water and diffusing it over the head of a child or even an adult, we're gonna have an adult baptism in the next uh, two or three weeks, with no preaching of the word, no reading of scripture, how long would it take For that to become some sort of wild, weird, superstitious something. How about this table right here? That we we set once a month, first Sunday, every first Sunday Lord's Day. And we take this. I'll tell you what would happen. Same thing that happened in the early church, even though they did it right. Once it went out into the public and the public started hearing about this meal that they were having. They were eating the body of Christ, drinking his blood. They must be cannibals. You take the word of God preached and proclaimed away from 
baptism and Lord's Supper, and it just is left to the vain imagination of men and women to figure out what it is. And you can turn it into some wild and woolly things. So the reformers said, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's part of worship. You preach the word, you explain it, and then you do it. You have the preached word, then you have the visualized word. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to preach God's word. Then we're going to see God's word. We're going to see the gospel in visible form. The water applied. The washing away of sins. The washing of regeneration, Paul says in Titus. The remission of sins. Now, does that take place right there? No. It symbolizes it. It points to it. And then God, in his marvelous grace, seals it to his people. The the deal is done. So at some point, see, God's not a respecter of time. As I said in the new members class this morning, we get caught up in time and chronology. And everything we're doing right now is in the theater of eternity. So things that take place like this, this baptism in a bit, God's not limited to right now when he uses that. He can make it a sign today and he can use it as a sign in a week or a month or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. This is his. It's not ours. He gave it to us to use to remind us of who he is and what he does. So the reformers came to passages like this and said, see, right here, baptism is coming, but preaching comes first. Preaching of the gospel, repentance. Notice the precedent of John's baptism also in verses 13 through 17. John established the precedent for Christ's church by baptizing our Lord. Now, I will just summarize briefly. There are some who who read this passage, like 13 through 17, and they say, well, my goodness, uh, Jesus was without sin. And John's baptizing with a baptism of repentance. So Jesus is not asking John to baptize him, he's asking him to anoint him. And we do know that in the Old Testament, the anointings, the priestly anointings were, were with water, pouring and sprinkling of water. That's what it is. He's, he's anointing him to priesthood. Some good people have held this position. The problem with that is, that's not what John's doing. He's not a priest to anoint. He's a prophet to proclaim and then to obey what God has said to do. Jesus comes to John to be baptized by him. John, mindful that this is the Lamb of God who's without sin. He has to be without sin if he's going to take away the sin of the world. And he says, Lord, please 
you need to baptize me. I'm the sinner. You're the perfect one. You you saw it. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus says, let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John clearly understood the significance of what he was doing, baptizing sinners. And Jesus comes along and says, do this to fulfill all righteousness. You say, okay, so what what is going on? Well, first of all, let me unpack the righteousness. Do this for all righteousness. Just one passage suffice from Paul's writings. For our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To fulfill all righteousness. I'm taking on the sin of the people. John, yeah, you can baptize me because I'm carrying their sins. And I'm going to go into the water for their sins. You're going you're to pour that water over my head for their sins. You see, folks, the fact is, and see, we kind of get lost in this every once in a while. Everything Jesus Christ came and did, everything he came to do was for us. When he went to the cross and shed his blood and gave his life, that was for us. He did that in our place. When he rose from the grave, he did that for us so that we might, doesn't Paul say this? He is the first fruit that we too might be raised from the dead on that great day of judgment John 5 speaks of. When he lived his perfect life, keeping the law in its perfection, did he not do that for us? Because it's demanded of us that we live a perfect, holy life. And yet we're sinners and we can't and we don't. He kept the law perfectly for us so that his righteousness, his death, his resurrection could all be ours. Why do we stop then at baptism and say, oh, but this was for something else. This wasn't for us. This was for him. No, this was about us. We're identified in Christ. We were chosen. The elect were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Everything he did was for his people to save his people from their sin. This This sacrament pictures that beautifully. Because Jesus went there first. He submitted to this ordinance for the same reason he did everything. Because he came to save sinners. He saved his elect by taking their place. He took our place by living, dying, being raised, and he's going to come again one day and declare us not guilty 
with no, no fingers pointed for everyone who's looking forward to it. That's why Christ did this. Let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented when Jesus was baptized, immediately came up from the water. Now I need to address something. The picture here being painted, the language being given is not one of coming up from under the water, but out of the water. Now that's significant and that's, that's a major issue. Because there are those who say, well, look, there, that proves immersion right there. He went up from the water. It doesn't say he came out from under the water. And the language won't even allow for that. He came up from the water because he was standing down in the water. Elsewhere we read that John and Jesus came up out of the water. So if Jesus came up from being immersed, so did John. There's no reason for that. If we understand that baptism is symbolic of life in Christ, of salvation in Christ, of God keeping his promises to generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. So, Jesus is our substitute when he goes to the baptism. He stood in our stead. He was baptized for the remission of our sins, not his own. For those countless tribes and peoples and languages that we read about that John saw in the heavens around the throne worshiping God in Revelation chapter 7. It's remarkable, isn't it? You say so. If I'm a believer today, you're saying it's, it's not just because Christ was resurrected from the dead. And it's not just because Christ was hung on a cross and crucified. It's not just because he lived a perfect life, but because he was baptized for me too. Yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. For the remission of our sins. Peter plays on this heavily. In that great sermon in Acts, chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, this preaching, again, we see preaching precedes the baptism. Preaching. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of Paul's brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the, the relationship there of repent and baptism and forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, for the promise is for you. And that's where some people quit reading. The promise is to you. That's not what it says, is it? Because see, Peter had read the Old Testament. Peter had read Genesis chapter 17. Peter had read Deuteronomy chapter 30. For you and your children. And that's where he goes. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice it doesn't say for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It says everyone that the Lord calls to himself. Don't get the words mixed up because your theology is bad. Let your theology be fixed with good words of the, of the Lord. Let me just read it to you again. The promise is for you. What's he talking about? He's talking about baptism. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about forgiveness of sins. And all that's about a promise from God for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Folks, some of you don't know this, but I need to say this every once in a while so you won't think that I don't know what I'm talking about. I grew up Baptist. I was educated a Baptist. The most beautiful thing in the world is when you come to understand that God deals with his people with that eternal covenant ever in mind. That I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I will save my people from their sins and their, their children and their generations of children. Go read the Bible. How many times does it address those who believe and keep the covenant and their children. It's a marvelous thing. The covenant faithfulness of God. Not because of anything we've done. But simply because. He chose to love us. That's unconditional. We struggle with that don't we? We struggle with unconditional. We're people of condition. I'll love you if. I'll do this if. You did that because. And God says, I just love you. And so I'm going to save a people from their sins. Not because of anything they have to offer me. Because they don't have anything to offer me. Do you understand if God didn't do it that way, there would be none saved. Because there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seek after God, not one. There is none who understand. By the way, I'm quoting scripture. Romans 3 and Paul was quoting scripture from the psalmist and others. That's the message of God all the way through. There's none. None. There'd be none. But God. In his infinite mercy has chosen a people for himself. And he sets us apart with this wonderful little sign that the world would find strange and weird. And yet God uses, just as he uses, what does Paul tell us when he's preaching to the Corinthians? He says the world finds the preaching of the word to be silly, to be foolish. Listen, if they think the preaching of the word is foolish, what do you think they think about this? What do you think they think about this table? So don't be deceived by what the world thinks. Be informed by what the word think, says. Think God's thoughts after him. God's word it keeps us on the straight path. So... Real quickly, what's the purpose of baptism? We've already touched on it. Jesus, it's dealing with the remission of sins. It's dealing with our sins, not his sins. Let me just give you four or five points here. 
First of all, the obvious from this passage, chapter 3 of Matthew, as well as the Acts chapter 2 passage, baptism points to the repentance which God demands of sinners and that which Christ procured. He procured repentance for us in identifying with us in that baptism. You say, no, he, just, he was just baptized. There wasn't anything, nothing happened then. Well, I'm sorry, my Lord Jesus Christ didn't do anything for nothing. My Lord Jesus Christ effected something with everything he did, or you and I have no hope. Second, baptism points to the remission of sins which we need and Christ procured for his people. We just saw that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Baptism points to the remission of sins. Third, baptism points to our identification or our union with Christ, just as Christ identified with us in his baptism. Now, you'll find that clearly stated in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, and Romans chapter 6, verse 3, that we are in baptism when applied by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ. Our confession says that even, even our infants are engaged to Christ. Notice it doesn't say they're married to Christ, engaged to Christ. Marriage comes through faith. Baptism also points to our place in the household of faith, the church. The inauguration of the saved into the church. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Remember, this is Paul that wrote that there is one common faith. There is one common baptism. He says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. What body is he talking about? The body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ the household of faith, the bride of Christ. That's the reason our confession of faith, as we, as we said earlier, we are united to Christ through this baptism, the visible church of Christ. You say, well, then you must be saved. No. We have never as Presbyterians and Reformed folks believed that everyone who's a member of a church is a, is a genuine Christian. Jesus told us that there wouldn't be a pure church on this earth, that there would be mixed wheat, tares. We've always believed in a gathered church, which will include believers and unbelievers. There'd be no way to know that everyone in this building was a believer, again, to my earlier point. And then finally, baptism is really about what God promises to his elect and what he does to save his people from their sin through the work of Jesus Christ. It's about his faithfulness, his promises, not ours. If you will get that through your mind and into your heart, folks, baptism is not about what you do. It's about what God has promised and what God can do. That's where people get all sideways. No, this is about me. I'm sorry. As I told the new members class earlier, this life is not about you and me. This life is about God. 
And baptism shows us one more time, this is about God. This is about God's promises. This is about God who can wash away sins. This is about God who can change hearts. This is about God. We come into it because he commanded us to do it. You say, well, if it's all about God, that must not be necessary. Actually, our confession says it's not necessary. But it's a sin to neglect it. You won't go to hell because you're not baptized. But you won't be obedient to God if you're not baptized. So we come because he commands us. Just like we preach the gospel. The elect are all going to be saved. We know that. They're secure. God can do it. He's been doing it for thousands of years without us. He could still do it without us. But he commands us to do it. He, cho- he chose in his infinite wisdom to use us as secondary means to bring about the salvation of people when we declare the word of God to them. We come to this for the same reason he's told us to. And we love him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I'll close with this. It's a wonderful quote. From Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. From his wonderful little shorter writing on baptism. Listen to this. I'll, I'll read slower even than I usually do. So you can reflect on this. Baptism, he says, as circumcision. And by the way, if, if you struggle with that comparison, Paul didn't in Colossians chapter 2. He just moves very freely back and forth talking circumcision and baptism. He understood the continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament because it was one people of God. We're the Israel of God, Paul says. Baptism as circumcision is a gift of God to his people. Please notice that. It's not me being faithful. Baptism is a gift of God to his people, not of his people to God. Abraham did not bring circumcision to God. He received it from God. God gave it to him as a sign and a seal, not to others, but to himself. It's inadequate, therefore, to speak of baptism as the badge of a Christian man's profession. By receiving it, we do make claim to be members of Christ. And our reception of it does mark us out to the observation of our fellow men as his followers. But... This is only an incidental effect. Does this mark us out as as members of the church? Yes. But that's just incidental. Is it a testimony to everyone in here when Philip and Elena bring Henry here in a few moments that they are being faithful to God, that they were obeying him, they're doing what he's commanded, and that, that now Henry is a member of this church Because he has been marked out as such. Yes, but that's just incidental. By receiving it, we do make claim to be members of Christ. And our reception of it does mark us out to the observation of our fellow men as his followers. But this is only an incidental effect. The witness of baptism is not to others, but to ourselves. And it's not by us but by God that the witness is born.
This is about what God has promised and what God will do for his people, for those who love him and keep his commandments. You say, does that mean everyone who's baptized will become a Christian? No. If you'll read our confession of faith, it says that those, as many as were called, just like Peter said, the same language of Peter in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 39, as many as were called by him. As the waters of baptism are applied to Henry in a few moments, we do so not because of what this little sinful child has done, but because of what God has commanded and what God has promised. If you're a believer today, it's because of what God has done for you, not what you've done, but what God's done for you. And what the Spirit has done in you. God's shown himself to be true. He's made that sacramental sign. That which pictured externally in your baptism. He's made it true in your heart. Again as Warfield says. This is a sign. It's pointing us. It's not the reality. It's a sign pointing us to what God promises. And what God can do. Father thank you that you've given us such such a wonderful sign. It's so simple, and yet you can take the simple and make it profound. We love you, we thank you, and ask now that you bless the Chessers, bless this congregation as we rally around them, we bind ourselves in covenant to them and to Henry. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to have them come up in a moment, but for right now, just a, just a couple of words. I think what's been said is sufficient already. That's the reason I did the sermon on baptism. Uh, so I wouldn't end up preaching two sermons. So I'll try to stick to that. But let me just reiterate a couple of things, a few things. First, baptism, the applying of water to the subject does not remove our filthy sins. Peter gets at this when he talks about the Noahic flood being a picture of baptism. And he says, but it's not the washing away. It had far greater significance than that. Baptism does not regenerate the heart. Paul ties baptism to regeneration. The washing of regeneration. But it doesn't do that. It's not mechanical. Baptism does not secure us a safe journey into the eternal state. You probably know people who say, well, you start trying to talk to them about Jesus and about the faith. They'll say, well, I was baptized. You know, I'm just trusting. I've actually had people say, I'm trusting my baptism. I'm sorry, but Christ is the one you need to trust. In the Old Testament, circumcision didn't do any of these things, although, as we've just seen in sample form in Deuteronomy 30, it symbolized 
those things. The taking away of the flesh, the dirty, filthy flesh. And so, same with baptism. It points to the need of the heart, the ability of God to do so. It points to the plan of God to do so for all of his people. It's a road marker in the life of covenant people of what God has for his people through faith in Christ alone. For all who have received baptism as a sign and seal, I want to admonish you. There is a proper way to look back to your baptism. Our larger catechism says that we're to be improving our baptism. Does that mean we can make better water than this water? No. Does that mean we can say the words of institution better than the pastor did? No. It means to to be growing. What this symbolizes, be realizing it. Be realizing that you're cleansed from your sin. More and more live like clean, wholesome, holy people. Isn't that what we're called to? Holiness? That's what the catechism is pointing to. Look back to your baptism. Repent of your sins against your covenant faithful God. Stir up your faith in Christ Jesus. And so make the proper use of your baptism. Don't let this Baptism today for Henry or your baptism or anyone else's baptism just be a dead symbol from the past. Faith is a living thing. Faith is a present tense. It's something that is ongoing. It's not something we, oh, I believed in Jesus. No, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I repented of my, no, I repent of my sins. Don't let this just be a dead symbol. If the Lord had intended that, he wouldn't have given it to us. He's a living God and he has a living people and everything that he does is with the purpose of life, eternal life. All right. Philip, Elena, put that bottle down. Bring that baby on up here. Last week I preached what is uh, one of my favorite passages to preach. Some of you already know what that is because I've preached it here three times in 14 years. Second Samuel chapter 9, David's covenant with Mephibosheth and the outworking of that covenant. And how Mephibosheth, lame in both feet, had to be brought. The king summoned him. And they went and they brought him. David declared him not guilty. Do not be afraid. He declared him adopted as son. You'll eat at my table continually. And guess what? They had to go get, go get Mephibosheth for breakfast, for snack, for lunch, for snack, for supper, for snack. Every day of his life because he was lame in both his feet. But he was forgiven, he was adopted, and he was being sanctified through the work of those men who all symbolized the spirit of the living God. Did you notice? They just brought him up here. I sent for him and he was brought. That's just symbolic. That's what has to happen. 
That's what salvation is about, is God doing it for us. And nothing symbolizes it better. As you see in the insert there, that wonderful Warfield quote, every time we baptize an infant, it reminds us that we cannot do for ourselves, but we must be done for. Aren't you glad? Nothing better symbolizes it than this baptism. All right, parents, teach your child to read God's word by reading it to him and with him from his earliest age. Teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and we are so blessed having Westminster. The confession, the catechism, the children's catechism. Don't neglect those. Instill in this little one a love for the truth of our great God. Pray with him and for him. Don't make the mistake, parents, of just praying for. Wouldn't it be sad? And I'll just throw this at all of you. Wouldn't it be terrible for children to grow up one day and say, you know, I know my dad prayed for me, but I don't remember ever hearing him pray. If that stings, repent. Pray with him and for him. Live an exemplary life of worship and service before your child. If, you're, if Henry doesn't know that you love the church and you love to be here, worship morning and evening, here for catechism and prayer meetings, he won't love them either. He'll see you as a hypocrite. Let's don't have that. The promises for you and your children... And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to him. Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then finally, in that wonderful passage with Lydia, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Isn't that marvelous? And so, Philip and Elena, do you acknowledge this crying little sinner needs the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ through the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ, do you? We do. It was easy to say that right now, wasn't it? Do you claim God's covenant promises in His behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus for His salvation as you do for your own salvation? Do Do you now unreservedly commit your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before Him a godly example, that you will pray with and for Him, that you will teach Him the doctrines of our holy religion, that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do. By the way, you're hearing Philip, but I can hear Elena. So I'm just wanting you to know they're on the same page. Now, congregation, we are the people of God. We're the covenant people bound by God and to God. So I want to ask you a question. If you're a member of this church, do you, Covenant Presbyterian Church, and let's do this this month with a hearty yes. All right? Let's all try to do the same word, yes. 
Do you, as Covenant Presbyterian Church, undertake the responsibility of assisting Philip and Elena in the Christian nurture of this child? Yes. Amen. Now, normally we have their elders standing up here with them, right? Well, I am. I'm playing both roles here. They're in my care group, and so I get to do double duty this, this morning. I just saw his stomach. Henry Joel Chesser, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for this little one, that you've entered into your visible church so that we can care for him and discipline him, that we can tell him all the wonders of Jesus Christ. We prayed this day that you would cause him to realize by your Spirit's work, what this water symbolizes, the washing away of sin, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, all the wonders of Christ would be most precious to Him. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.